Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Mark McCabe. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here. So, Mark, we're we're here to talk about fundraising. We're here to talk about marketplaces. By way of introduction, how did you become an expert on on those two topics? Why don't you give a little bit of your your backstory? My backstory is that about 10 years ago, and you could probably hear that I'm not from the U.S., I'm I'm from Ireland. And about 10 years ago, I I moved to San Francisco and um, started working at an early stage fund, SV Angel, um, which is sort of where I uh, started really getting my investor chops, so to speak. Um, One of our investments um, was Airbnb, and uh, I got to know the founders a little bit and was honestly just kind of bowled over by the business. I was I was obsessed, actually. I just moved to San Francisco. Um, I had no credit history in the US, so getting a lease on an apartment was challenging. And Brian was really pitching a vision that uh, resonated with me. And, um, you know, I still think it was at a point where I think most VCs would not have seen themselves staying in an Airbnb, though they definitely liked the business model um, of the company. And, and it was really my first exposure to the potential of marketplaces online. We'd seen eBay, but it was maybe more of an outlier in terms of a consumer marketplace going so big online. And um, I just saw a huge amount of potential in Airbnb to, to open up uh, a version of travel that I, I really uh, respected and loved. And uh, so I started working there at the end of 2011. I was, I was the first business development hire, went on to start one of our first verticalized approaches, um, which was uh, Airbnb for Business. Um, I started at a hackathon and then it um, slowly snowballed into a, a team of about 40 people. And then uh, my last role at the company was was director of operations at Samara, which is Airbnb's R&D group. Since then, I've, I've set up a consultancy where I help founders raise capital at Series A and B, um, which is something I, I took from my time at SV Angel and watching Ron Conway um, help founders through this really challenging process. And then about eight, nine months ago, I, I decided to move back to Europe and um, kind of apply what I've learned in the U.S. Um, to, to the European scene. Yeah. And let's get into, into fundraising. What, what do you think your sort of contribution to the literature is? Or another way of asking the question is, what, what misconceptions do you think people uh, have about fundraising? Or what are things that people don't really fully appreciate about the, the craft and the process? That's a really good question. I guess I could talk about some of the common mistakes that I see. Um, but like, firstly, at a high level, I think the thing that people don't fully grasp about it is you're selling an equity in a private opaque market. And my major high level point to most founders is the only way to gain leverage in this process is to run a parallel process that makes it not a buyer of one that opens up this equity to a marketplace of buyers. And I, I think there's some things that founders do that set them up poorly to, to end up with that result. Um, one is, I think, not really taking the time to plan the process, sporadically starting meetings. But if you don't constrain these meetings within a certain time frame, you can end up in a situation where you have different investors that you're talking to who are at different stages of their analysis of your company. 
And the problem is once a term sheet does come and a champagne problem, though that may be, uh, it does set a clock. You don't have forever to make a decision on the term sheet. And if other investors are not aligned with this process and are in off pace in terms of the timing, um, they won't be able to, to make up the difference uh, all the time. And you'll be left in a situation of taking what you have or you know, turning down what you don't know you won't have yet, if that makes sense. Totally. Talk about the differences in between raising uh, seed and A and B. I would say there are a lot of similars to A and similarities to A and B. You know, you certainly have more history, um, which means better and more granular data. Um, but there's a huge difference, I think, between seed and A. Um, at, at A, you should be starting to see the signs of product market fit. You should be starting to see retention data and potentially cohort data um, that is stable enough to attract investors. At Seed, likely you have very little of this, even if you are post-launch. You know, if you have six months of data, it's really not quite enough to, to be able to kind of bank on. And I think uh, for those of us who have been to Y Combinator's Demo Day, where you see, you know, the three months of traction, 100% month over month growth, and, you know, it, it is just hard to kind of base your decision on that. Now, what it does mean is that there are other in, more intangible signals at Seed that I think are really interesting and personally appeal to me a lot more sometimes than, than looking at metrics. And those are, you know, the team, their alignment in terms of skills and the market that they're going for. And, and this one thing that, again, I'm, I borrowed from, from YC liberally, and I think it's an absolutely perfect summation of, of what you want to look for in a seed investment is insight. You know, what does this founder see that's different, that's unique? Uh, how do they back up that opinion with logic and conviction. Um, what about their background tells you that they might have unique insight into this opportunity? Um, and those are things that that I love to sort of play with mentally and, and work through with the founders um, that I'm talking to. Let's talk about how to run a great Series A process. You mentioned sort of the parallel processing. What are sort of the checklist of, of, of things that, that you think constitute a, a great you know fundraising process? Oh, how long do we have? Well, I guess I at a high level, I break it down into four stages. I think there's there's the preparation stage, and and this is where you're going to obviously come up with your deck, um, really start building what the process is going to look like, and and get some reps in as well uh, at a really high level. I can dive into all of that. The second is actually kind of beginning this process, and 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 that is a really kind of complicated stage it's, it's quite a stressful stage there's uh, a lot of meetings back to back i think you have to manage your energy levels um, you're coordinating the largest number of parties that you will at any point during the round then you sort of move on to a kind of deeper diligence phase where you know especially at series b often at series a uh, funds are going to want to start looking through your data room going to want to maybe do customer references you're managing fewer funds at this point but the relationship should be strengthening, right? I mean, what's not to be forgotten is that to get anyone to give you 10 or $20 million for your business, there has to be an enormous amount of trust that they have in you. And your job is to build that trust over the process of a round. And in any relationship, trust is built through millions of interactions staggered on top of each other. And I think around should be really a process of, of building this trust, of providing these blocks. So you're at the stage now where you have fewer founders doing deeper diligence or fewer funds doing deeper diligence. And then finally, you get to this closing phase and um, it has some unique challenges of itself. Um, but getting to term sheet, understanding what your options are once you receive a term sheet, 
um, and just trying to navigate that process as best as possible. And, you know, the goal of this is not to help founders maximize the, the price or valuation of their company. It's to give them options. It's to give them uh, a clearer process, which is less stressful and less opaque and a more structured approach to something that ultimately their company likely hinges on. Um, so a really key, important moment inflection point for the company. Awesome. Let, let's get into in, into the weeds on those four stages. So, so starting with prep um, and then also getting your reps in, what's most important or any common mistakes that you see people make in, in, in the prep process that they should be uh, you know, mindful of? I think it takes quite a while to produce a deck uh, at Series A and Series B, longer than I think most founders want to give it. And understandably, they're busy. They're trying to run a company at the same time. The metrics can't start going south um, as soon as you start your raise. Um, so you have to be able to to juggle both. Um, and so I, I think it takes quite a while sometimes to marinate a little bit on what are the strongest points of your business? I find that founders are quite in the re- weeds. And so as soon as they see a green shoot, it's an incredibly exciting thing for them. But sometimes translating that into uh, uh, something that was going to really attract investors is difficult. So what I encourage them to do is really, first off, as a founding team, take stock of where you are uh, in terms of your metrics, your data, what you're seeing in the market, what are the signals that are exciting you. Try to stack rank them, prioritize them, just play around with them and understand how they fit into a narrative. And a narrative is really important because funds are seeing multiple pitches every single day. Um, They have to walk away with really clear takeaways from your pitch. And those takeaways need to be aligned with the strongest elements of your business. So taking time to sort of look at this whole kind of constellation of points and, and figure out where they might fit in, I think is really key. Working through a deck uh, and really honing this narrative before you design it, I think is is very helpful as well. I do think enlisting a designer uh, to help you think through your deck once you've kind of really developed this content is helpful, but you know maybe not the most important element. A, a part that I think is really important is sort of the timing around once your deck is finished and when you start your process. I like to try to coordinate outreach all within a very short period of time to try and make sure these meetings happen at the same time. That requires a lot of setup. You should be combing through your LinkedIn, understanding where you have warm connections to different funds. You should be identifying which funds you're really going to try to target. And to do that, you need to know, are those funds interested in your space? Are they capable of writing the correct lead check size that you need um, to raise this round? Um, There is quite a lot of legwork that's required in, in just putting together your list of potential funds or target funds. Um, and then one part of the process that I think has, has been super helpful to, to the founders I've worked with up to this point is what I call hardening the pitch. And I try to identify four to five people. They can be founders who are operating in, in a similar or very narrowly tangential space to where you're working, potentially your early investors who might be very knowledgeable about the space. And I would take them through the deck pre-design to really stress test your narrative, stress test some of the points that you're making, ask where the pitch is falling down or where where there's just that small kernel of doubt about different points you're saying. And those are points that you may need to reinforce. And that's something I often find with a deck the first time a founder pitches me is, uh, you know, they will say at some point something fairly subjective, but base it as fact. And I think those moments are almost invisible but the VCs are incredibly good at pattern recognition and 
truthfully, I, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Actually, I should ask first. Please, please. Um, bullshit detection. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to get through that gauntlet. And to do that, I think you really need to understand these kind of critical points where your pitch can fail. Yeah. Uh, I like how you said bullshit detection and I said bullshitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to zoom out, what about in context of when people should go out to fundraise? What is the right timing for when people should go out for their Series A? Any frameworks for thinking about that? Well, in 2020, that's been thrown on its head a little bit. Yes. So let's let's zoom out and assume that things kind of go back to some relative state of normalcy next year where you're not tethered to your computer and you don't <laughs> live entirely on a Zoom, which is ironic I'm saying this while I'm on Zoom. But, you know, historically, I think there are periods where people like to say it's a bad time to pitch VCs. August is a bad time. Thanksgiving is a bad time. Christmas is a bad time. I don't think it's quite such a hard and fast rule. If I'm trying to optimize it, if I'm trying to find a really great window, I like January. I kind of think that, you know, and you, you, I should ask you this, actually. How do you feel when you come in back into the office in January? Like, you've, you've taken stock over things over, yeah. over the winter break. What are you thinking in January? Motivated, excited, you know, rejuvenated. You know, I'm a believer in, in, in you know, excited for for a new slate and to and to meet companies and uh, and and hopefully partner with them. And I think potentially maybe you have in mind some of the deals that you wish you'd done the prior year, or yeah. the deals that you the, the space that maybe is becoming clearer to you after some time away to take stock on the year. Um, so I think January, February is a great time to try and get into the inbox. Um, I think. September through to Thanksgiving is kind of like a perfect block of time where there shouldn't be like wild interruptions. It is true that like a lot of people want to take vacations over the summer. I don't think that's like anything too truly um, groundbreaking. But what happens is if, if there is a period where a lot of people are taking vacation, it does make coordination and timing that little bit harder. It makes it harder to keep everyone quite in lockstep if the two or three VCs you're most excited about can't meet for a couple of weeks. So um, I do think that like, if you were in July, maybe you just think of August as you're trying to do the prep and, and yeah. you, you take off in September, but like anyway, January to March, you can start a process without really thinking about it. And do you um, have any hard rules around make sure you have nine months of runway or, 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 or just in terms of when, <laughs> not in terms of you know what month it is, but where the business is? Yeah. There's, I think there's kind of, uh, some tropes that go around about that, not that there's not truth to them. Like certainly if you have four months of cash left, you have less leverage than if you have 18 months of cash left. Uh, unfortunately, I've rarely seen it shake out um, where founders really get much of a choice in the matter. The most important thing is, do you have the right signals in your business that are going to justify this capital? And the business has to show that there's the kind of returns that investors are looking for, that traction and, and growth rates are in the right direction. And, you know, trying to go out and raise, even if you have 18 months of cash left, but no, not having those signals is not optimal either. So, you know, if you have the advantage to raise capital with a large runway, that's great. It just tends to be more a function of like, how quickly can you get to the right signals? Yeah. Let's go into the beginning stage now, your, your second stage. What's most important to, to get right there or any common mistakes you, you, you see people people make there? A couple of things. I think sometimes some founders pack too many meetings in. So like pitching your business is draining. Uh, doing it four to seven times a day, it's, it's, it's really difficult. What I advise founders is to try and limit themselves to four to five pitches a day 
over a two week period. They should give them themselves suitable buffer between each meeting. Now, this was more important when you were stressing about that Uber ride uh, across the city or down to the South Bay or whatever. But um, I still think like just having a small window between pitches to resummon your energy and, and get back into the next one is, is a good idea. I think after the fourth or fifth pitch, um, and this is not true of everyone, but I think for the vast majority, it's just hard to summon that same energy that day to do yet another pitch. Um, but it kind of depends. Are you in the first day of this or in the, um, the 14th day of it? I think that's one common mistake. I think another mistake is also just, like I said, not, not trying to pack these meetings into two weeks. Like if you don't and you are meeting a fund for the first time in week four, but those funds you met in week one are now into second and third meetings um, or even maybe moving into diligence, um, it's just going to be – you almost shouldn't have bothered meeting that that fund three, four weeks in. Now, there is a, a kind of some logic to trying to get work through 15 to 20 of your favorite VCs first. And if you're really confident in your metrics, I'm totally aligned with this process. And, you know, potentially maybe four weeks in reassessing, asking yourself if maybe you need to, to kind of ping a second set of, of funds. But I think you have to be remarkably confident in where you're at with your business and and maybe have some prior relationships with with funds that that you feel want to get on board. Yeah. So, yeah. Some founders have sort of theology around you know, they should meet with their B investors first so they can practice or they should, you know, do angels first uh, so they get signal or angels last so that the funds are signal for the angels. Do you have any sort of, uh, you know, recommended frameworks around that or is that a bit too too cute? I have a lot of people who will say, you know, pitch, pitch the investor I'm least excited about first. I think you can do this in a micro way. I think maybe day one, don't make it the most highly pressurized funds that you're talking to, but I wouldn't leave them two weeks out still, you know? Yeah. But I, I, I think it's okay maybe day one to, to to go talk to some funds that y- you really don't know very well, that you're not sure about whether they're really even a fit for your space. Um, to, to get a couple of extra reps in, I do think this is why the hardening helps so much. You're going to get a much more honest take because the signals that you get once you start pitching are not quite as direct as the signals you might get from from pitching people you know beforehand as well. And um, you have to really obviously make sure you solicit that kind of feedback. Yeah. And, and talk about what your goal is in that first meeting with the Series A investor and, and then what you can expect uh, going forward in terms of, you know, understand a bit about how their process might work and, and how it might play out. It's the start of a relationship. They should they should be getting to know who you are and what you stand for. And they should really walk away with clear takeaways. I think if you are getting into a lot of depth to explain one small point of your business, though you might think to yourself, this is so important that they understand it. It's going to be really hard for them to take that away sometimes if you can't crystallize it. Um, you know, I used to work with this um, really excellent coach. Uh, his name is Ren Vara. He helped a lot of the early Airbnb um, uh, staff out. And he always said, like, people need to walk away with three things um, from any presentation you do. And you should be direct about this. You should actually lay these things out before you start presenting and you should remind them about them at the end. And you actually see it in a lot of really great famous speeches and, and um, through the years. So trying to identify what those three most important points are is actually kind of a challenge, I think, in a pitch. But I, I want them to go away with really clear headlines about why what they're going to repeat to the next partner they want to kind of socialize the deal with, what they're going to repeat to other people inside of the fund to get feedback or, or external uh, parties that they're going to get feedback from. Um, it's, it's a branding mission, essentially. 
No. And and put yourself uh, in the uh, in the head of the Series A or Series B uh, investor. They they just heard you know the pitch. Uh, what's going on in their mind, and how are they likely to spend the next you know week one to three weeks you know on, on this company? Yeah, and empathy about this is really important. And another, I think, a difficult thing for founders to to put themselves in the fund's position. And you know this um, better than I do, Eric, but, you know, you're seeing so many pitches a day. Um, You're trying to really make sure that you do focus on the ones that stand out to you and allocate them the right amount of time while also not disrespecting, I think, the other startups that you're talking to that don't just immediately sort of grab you. And a lot, I think, especially at seed stage, um, but even Series A, there is sort of an instinctive feel that ends up driving how much effort and time that you put into each company that you talk to. I think they're thinking, I, I need to understand this better, obviously. I need to uh, talk to people who may know the space better than me, or if I know the space very well, maybe I can move a little bit faster. And I'm thinking to myself, I need to lock down a second meeting as, as soon as possible if there's a really strong fit. So there can be a wide range of reactions, I think. Um, but founders also forget that you know VCs have families and their people and they're late for many things all the time and you know I I actually had one situation where there was a a fund who was really excited after a first meeting and went completely radio silent on my on my uh, the founder I was working with for about 12 days after this first meeting and this founder was getting barely a rate and kind of saying this is just this is what they always do and 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 we found out 12 days later that their wife had his wife had just given birth and so I think it's really important to try and, and remember this kind of relationship and how you can build it. Now, how you manage the process can really help um, with this as well. Like, I think sometimes there's too much of an emphasis on when can I check in? Can I check in yet? Is, is it time to check in? It's been three days. Is three days the window? Is seven days the window? I, I think there's a reasonable uh, you know, need to, to follow up and try and get clarity. Um, but there are really good ways to do that, ways that can help you build this relationship with the fund that you're trying to pitch. And maybe it's having five or six really interesting articles or whatever influences they are that, that show you something that other people don't quite see. Well, that's good supporting material. It can be really interesting and it, it can create a conversation about why, why you're doing what you're doing. It can further the understanding that your investor has about your business. So I tried to lead with these things as ways to check in, as ways to keep building the relationship. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, let's go to the, the, the third phase, the diligence phase. How, how, what are some concrete ways that you think uh, entrepreneurs or you advise entrepreneurs to build trust d- during this process? Um, don't say you have a term sheet when you don't have one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think you have to be, listen, at Series A, there are still things that you see that you know you don't want investors to see. And um, that's that's okay. That's understandable. I think that's that's part of how the game works. You have to try and be as honest and authentic about your business and what you're seeing as humanly possible. You should never really be misleading about metrics um, because the truth is if one fund finds out, I think fairly significant chunk of the funds you're talking to will find out, especially if they're uh, majority based in San Francisco. So honestly, like I was saying at the very start, I think VCs are very good at seeing through this stuff. And yeah. your job is, is not to be a master bullshitter. It's to be someone who really wants to grow a business. It's to be someone who's excited to find a partner 
who wants to help them scale that business. And it's a wonderful experience to then get to share in that afterwards. So you have to start on the right foot. Yeah. And, and as a entrepreneur, is your goal to, to, to get to your first term sheet? And, and what are the, the things that you could do to maximize uh, that, 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 that happening? A lot of it, obviously, I think still depends on on where your business is at and what its readiness is. And, you know, there's, I'll be very honest, like there's not much that I or anyone can really do to change that. Now, there's maybe a few people who can corral investors and pull them into your rounds. And, and I think that's great. You're really just pushing the problem down the street. So what can you do to increase your chance of getting a, a term sheet? I think how you present the information and how you get this pitch right is probably the most fundamental building block of, of how you progress with investors. Now, at some point, rubber meets the road. Investors will sort of dig into your metrics. Um, they will look at retention. They will look at cohorts. And if you haven't found product market fit, everything that you've done that you've built up this point can kind of disappear. So I think trying to solicit feedback on when you might be ready, like really engaging your early investors. If you are starting to build relationships with growth equity or series A investors, I think asking them, what are the kind of milestones you might want to see that would tell you this business is ready to scale and taking advantage of those early opportunities and those early meetings. But really trying to get this feedback about why your company is ready or not and understanding what narrative is going to make people believe it too. That's the secret. Yeah. What's your stance on uh, deadlines or forcing functions that are, you know, are, are arbitrarily set by the founder? How do you, how do you think about that? Uh, processes can drag on. Uh, that's for certain. You know, I, I've seen typical average is somewhere between two and three months, but I've worked on processes that have last four months and I've worked on them that have last four to six weeks. Um, at series A and B. Uh, I think once you get to the final phase, there's definitely something that you can do around coordination that can help people get to a result. And the fear is right that if you push funds, that they will pass. And early on, that is a very realistic fear. I think once a fund has done a lot of work, they've committed a lot of hours to investigating your business. Sometimes, you know, if they're going to pass at this point, I think they were probably going to pass anyway. If you do get a term sheet and you have five to 10 funds who are at a similar stage of diligence, I think it's perfectly appropriate to let them know that you've received a term sheet. Uh, you know, There's different opinions on whether you should tell them about the valuation and all these different things. Uh, I'll never forget Delian um, at Founders Fund telling me that the absolute best funders are super direct and honest at this stage. They actually just say it straight up. I'm raising X amount from X funds and, you know, here's why I might want to work with you more. Um, it's not really always about negotiating price. I think it's about finding a partner that you want to work with, that you respect, that you think is going to add a lot of value to the business and to your other shareholders. But I do think that once you get this first term sheet, and especially if it's one you're willing to accept, you have a lot of leverage to move things a little bit faster. You know, I think at this point, it's reasonable to ask that there be clarity on, on how a fund feels about you once they've done all this work. Let's give this example. You get your first term sheet. And it's, yep. it's someone you, you like, um, but you're not sure if they're, they're not your number one, they're your number three or whatever. Um, you okay. get a term sheet. How do you, uh, you know, keep them excited while not sort of like pre-committing uh, and also able to shop to your, to your number one and number two in a respectful way to everybody? Eric, are you, are you going to use all of this against? <laughs> no. Yes. I, so 
I think when you receive a term sheet, a really important step is to identify a time window that you find acceptable for responding to it. And that doesn't mean like, I'll tell you next year, but you know, a fund will often say, listen, can you tell us by Friday what you're, you know, I've given this to you Tuesday. Can you tell us in three days um, what your answer is? Now, that seems very reasonable. You might know, listen, if I could just stretch that a week, it would make a big difference to me. I think that's perfectly reasonable. Socializing it, there are delicate ways to do that. I think one thing that you can do is finally start doing your own process on these funds, like potentially ask, can you do reference checks? explain reasons, maybe why you and your founders won't be able to make a decision in a three-day window and, and ask what is what is the furthest that the fund would be willing to, to tolerate. Now, this is where I think my opinion and some founders might differentiate, might differ a little bit. Some people will say, listen, you've got to take that term sheet and you've just got to go negotiate the hell out of it with all the other funds that you're talking to. That can work for a lot of people. Um, I think it's it's a higher risk version of the game. Personally, I'd rather just be very direct and honest, say I have a term sheet. I am going to need to make a, a decision within this window. When can you make a decision by? I have I have till this time. And once you have this window understood with the first fund that gave you the term sheet, it's so much easier for you to manage the others. When you, when you receive the term sheet from an X firm, can you tell other firms that X firm gave you the term sheet? Do you have to ask, ask X firm for per- permission or how do you think about that? I, I don't think you need to ask for permission. I guess the question is, what do you benefit by by saying it? And that's the question I would I would ask myself. Always always bring it back. Like, how are you? How is this process going to benefit? How's your company going to benefit? I think if founders put themselves more in this place of I'm doing this for my business, it, it, it might might make it a little bit easier sometimes. And and that is who you're beholden to as a founder, as a CEO of the company. Yeah. Uh, so. Kind of going back to your question, I guess, like, should you say, I think sometimes it's okay to do a bracket. Like a lot of founders will say a top tier fund. Now that yeah. definition is fairly um, uh, subjective, I guess. Yeah. But I think the most important thing to clarify is it's a term sheet I'm willing to take. Yeah. Um, this is an offer I am willing to take and and uh, I need you to understand that so you can take the rest of the process, uh, as, you know, the way you'd want to know um, about it. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, you know different people have different opinions on sort of you know what to do when you ha- when you have a term sheet. What are other things within this craft, just like any other craft, that that you have sort of a different opinion perhaps than than the mainstream or, or some other people that, that come to mind for you, just about fundraising generally? I think I've touched on a lot of them. For me, a lot of it comes down to empathy. Listen, I've done when I've worked with founders, I tend to find that I do a lot of phone calls around eleven p.m. midnight. And late into a process, I know what that means. Um, but I think if you can have empathy and understand that this is really difficult on both sides, I mean, let's look at it from a VC's perspective. And I hope you don't mind me sort of stepping into these shoes um, with you. I'd, I'd love if you can add to it as well. But I'd say 2% of deals you see, you know immediately. You love it, right? And let's say... 20 to 50% of deals, you know, you don't like immediately. And there's this huge bucket of deals in the middle, I think that fall into a, like, I could look like a fool for passing, I could look like a fool for investing. And and that's a really difficult, and then multiply that by however many companies that fund is seeing per week. So 
I think that's a very difficult situation to be in. And if you put yourself in those shoes, put yourself in like the situation of having to commit a large sum of money in front of your peers to a company, um, all of these deals end up public, they end up on email newsletters that people are reading, they end up, you know, on TechCrunch or wh wherever. Um, you, you, you fail in public, I think, as a VC. Quite, quite a difficult position to be in. If you have empathy for this, I think it'll make your approach mentally so much different than if your approach is, they don't get it. Like, you know, like VCs are, are you know, are founders that can't found companies or I don't know, like they do, they just create these personas that are really not very accurate. It's an incredibly nebulous and, and challenging job. And, um, and I think you just need to understand that position. Yeah. No, no, that's uh, that, that's instructive. I, I want to segue into marketplaces a, a, a bit, okay. and I, I want to take it where, wherever you, you find most interesting. We could talk about how to fundraise for marketplaces. We could talk about uh, if you're evaluating marketplaces from an investing perspective, what, what what's important to look at. We talk about you know marketplaces of the future or where you see opportunities now. Where do you think your most sort of uh, interesting thoughts on marketplaces are? And let, let's let's go there. Okay, well, let's look at some dynamics maybe that I look for when I am I'm looking at marketplaces. Marketplaces are just one of the most challenging types of businesses uh, to start. And it's because there's so many parties involved. There's a supply side, there's a demand side. If, if you look at companies like DoorDash, there's, it's, it's even more complex, I think. And I think one thing that is really missing from, I guess, the theme of what is it you should be looking at in a marketplace is oftentimes a really crazy founder. Uh, I think it's someone who either has an incredibly steely disposition or is very resilient because there's a cold start that exists in marketplaces that I think is really psychologically challenging to overcome and um, makes traction really challenging early on. So founder mindset is something that I've looked at a lot and I guess I can mention maybe a couple of, of the companies I have invested in that I think fit this mold. Obviously, Airbnb, like Brian might be the most resilient founder I've ever met. Paul Graham described the Airbnb founders as cockroaches. They'd survive a nuclear disaster. Uh, similarly, I think when I've invested in companies like Chef or Papa, uh, both of them which came out of Y Combinator, I don't think those were the companies that all the investors were flocking to at demo day. And I think that can be quite difficult to be in that position as a founder at demo day. But you would not have known this talking to these founders. They were 100% resolute and determined um, that, that this was going to be successful. And they probably are hearing from partners inside YC, you know, this could be tough or like maybe we need to adjust this a little bit. I think they get a sense about where they stack rank in the batch. I, I really do think that the founders coming out of, out of each Y Combinator batch sort of understand how the partners feel about their business and where they sort of rank. And if you're doing a marketplace, you probably have less data, less signals, um, and a more challenging path upwards afterwards. So uh, resilience is incredibly key. In terms of like the fundamentals of the business and how you're approaching it, a couple of things I do love to see. One is really unique supply. Two is disintermediating a process that is very popular. And I think finally is something where you can see a positive reinforcing effect between supply and demand. So what do I mean by that? Because that's kind of a complicated topic. Let's look at, at Airbnb. 
we started growing internationally. I say we, I mean Airbnb. I'm no longer at the company. Um, Airbnb started growing internationally long before they really planned to. And this happened because we had guests from Paris staying in properties in New York. And, you know, they're staying in a strange loft in New York with like a, a shark head on the wall. And it's the most conversational thing that they've done all year. And they go back to wherever they were in, in Paris. And maybe they don't become a host themselves. Actually, there was, there was rarely an indicator to us that tons of Airbnb guests were becoming hosts. What actually happens is they tell 10 other people, I stayed in this loft in Brooklyn and there was this shark head on the wall. And this conversation travels around and someone within that group becomes a host. So our, as we added more guests to the platform, it created a virtuous cycle where we were adding more supply. And supply was always the hardest thing for Airbnb to, to add. In each market, a new host was worth a completely different thing to the next market. You couldn't really set up partnerships at scale that would generate new host listings. It's just a very difficult proposition to sell through a partnership. Like take $50 off Uber and open up your homes to other people. Like it, it's a hard proposition to sell in that moment. And so having this kind of positive reinforcing effect between your demand and your supply, I think is, is something I try to understand early. Like, is that possible? Like, can the demand fuel the supply to a certain degree? And that can be quite hard to see at seed stage, but um, those are sort of the dynamics that I, I look for the most. Um, okay, that's a great place to wrap. Mark, for people who want to learn more about, about your work and go deeper in some of these topics, uh, where, where can you point them to? Uh, come find me on Twitter, uh, at McCabe, M-C-C-A-B-E. Um, I'm pretty responsive on there. Um, my, my DMs are open, as they say. And um, yeah, thanks very much for, for inviting me on the show. My guest today has been Mark McCabe. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.